Hey gang, just wanted to record a quick introductory note to episode 72 of Pulp Today. 72 means this is the end of the third season, the third set of 24 episodes. I kind of can't believe I have done 72 of these things, often with amazing guests. And I will be doing more of them in the future, but I'm going to take an unspecified hiatus now. I have a lot of writing to do. I have another podcast with uh, Ryland Grant, The Writer's Block, which you can check out. Currently, this issue of Elvira in Horrorland is out. Episode 4 will be out sometime in September. 5 will be out sometime in October, one hopes. In September, I'll also be at Long Beach Comic Con and at Granite State Comic Con in Manchester, New Hampshire. For anyone who wants to come see me in uh, the New England area, which is very different from the Long Beach, California area. But that's it. Enjoy this episode, and I'll be back in a month or two or three with another 24-episode chunk. I'll probably get a bunch done and saved up so that I can drop them on you all at once. Thank you so much for listening, and now, Crash by J.G. Ballard. Hello, gang, and welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Pulp Today. I am your host, David Avalone, taking a drink of vodka on ice on a pleasant Sunday morning. Mm. Probably to be dropped, as the kids say, on a Monday. This episode's going to be a little different. I'm going to talk about the book Crash by J.G. Ballard. Uh, I'm quite fond of the book. I'm quite fond of the movie. Not the cover. It's not a great cover. Uh, Interesting side note, when the movie came out years ago, I discovered the, quite to my surprise, the low capacity for uh, appreciating kink in my friend group at the time, and some of my best friends refused to go see the new David Cronenberg movie with me because it was about sex and car accidents. Uh, And while there's a part of me that can appreciate that, there's also a part of me that goes, really? You don't want to see? Okay. And uh, it's not that I particularly share that kink. It's just it's David Cronenberg. I'm always interested in what he has to say. Oddly enough, uh, through happenstance and coincidence, none of those people are my friends anymore. Anyway, all of my current friends would absolutely go see Crash with me. All that said, I say this is going to be an odd one because uh, much though I love the book and think it is absolutely worthy of discussion... I'm not going to read something from this book. I'm going to read something from the introduction to this book. The introduction written in, let's say, does it have an introduction copyright 1974? When I read you this introduction, particularly the first paragraph, you are going to think it was written yesterday. It is that on the nose with culture and where we're going and that he was so ahead of his time in so many ways. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing, but that's the prescient nature is not what draws me to talk about this. If this show has anything that you could call a a running subtext, and I talked about it quite a bit bit in the last episode, which was the uh, Paul Auster City of Glass New York trilogy episode, it is that we frequently devalue what we call low art, i.e., pulp fiction in favor of some sort of high-toned literature, and the barriers there are weaker than are generally understood, and that some of the best writers can do their best work 
in genre, getting their hands dirty, like all of us uh, mere hacks. And uh, in this introduction to Crash, written in 1974, I think a year after its original, yeah, only a year after its original publication, he wants to defend the reputation of his novel, which was probably written off as mere pornography. Introduction to the French Edition, 1974. The marriage of reason and nightmare, which has dominated the 20th century, has given birth to an ever more ambiguous world. Across the communications landscape move the specters of sinister technologies and the dreams that money can buy. Thermonuclear weapon systems and soft drink commercials coexist in an overlit realm ruled by advertising and pseudo-events, science and pornography. Over our lives preside the great twin leitmotifs of the 20th century, sex and paranoia. Despite McLuhan's delight in high-speed information mosaics, we are still reminded of Freud's profound pessimism in civilization and its discontents. Voyeurism, self-disgust, the infantile basis of our dreams and longings, these diseases of the psyche have now culminated in the most terrifying casualty of the century, the death of affect. This demise of feeling and emotion has paved the way for all our most real and tender pleasures, in the excitements of pain and mutilation, in sex as the perfect arena, like a culture bed of sterile pus, for all the Veronicas of our own perversion, in our moral freedom to pursue our own psychopathology as a game, and in our apparently limitless powers of conceptualization. What our children have to fear is not the cars on the highways of tomorrow, but our own pleasure in calculating the most elegant parameters of their deaths. To document the uneasy pleasures of living within this glaucous paradise, has more and more become the role of science fiction. I firmly believe that science fiction, far from being an unimportant minor offshoot, in fact represents the main literary tradition of the 20th century, and certainly its oldest, a tradition of imaginative response to science and technology that runs an intact line through H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, the writers of modern American science fiction, to such present-day innovators as William Burroughs. The main fact of the 20th century is the concept of the unlimited possibility. This predicate of science and technology enshrines the notion of a moratorium on the past, the irrelevancy and even death of the past, and the limitless alternatives available to the present. What links the first flight of the Wright brothers to the invention of the pill is the social and sexual philosophy of the ejector seat. Given this immense continent of possibility, few literatures would seem better equipped to deal with their subject matter than science fiction. No other form of fiction has the vocabulary of ideas and images to deal with the present, let alone the future. The dominant characteristic of the modern mainstream novel is a sense of individual isolation, its mood of introspection and alienation, a state of mind always assumed to be the hallmark of the 20th century consciousness. Far from it. On the contrary, it seems to me that this is a psychology that belongs entirely to the 19th century, part of a reaction against the massive restraints of bourgeois society, the monolithic character of Victorianism, and their tyranny of the pedophilias, secure in his financial and sexual authority. Apart from its marked retrospective bias and its obsession with the subjective nature of experience, its real subject matter is the rationalization of guilt and estrangement. Its elements are introspection, pessimism, and sophistication. Yet if anything befits the 20th century, it is optimism. The iconography of mass merchandising, naivety, and a gray, guilt-fury enjoyment of all the mind's possibilities. The kind of imagination that now manifests itself in science fiction is not something new. 
Homer, Shakespeare, and Milton all invented new worlds to comment on this one. The split of science fiction into a separate and somewhat disreputable genre is a recent development. It is connected with the near disappearance of dramatic and philosophical poetry, and the slow shrinking of the traditional novel as it concerns itself more and more exclusively with the nuances of human relationships. Among those areas neglected by the traditional novel are, above all, the dynamics of human societies. The traditional novel tends to depict society as static, and man's place in the universe. However crudely or naively, science fiction at least attempts to place a philosophical and metaphysical frame around the most important events within our lives and consciousness. If I make this general defense of science fiction, it is, obviously, because my own career as a writer has been involved with it for almost 20 years. From the very start, when I first turned to science fiction, I was convinced that the future was a better key to the present than the past. At the time, however, I was dissatisfied with science fiction's obsession with its two principal themes, outer space and the far future. As much for emblematic purposes as any theoretical or programmatic ones, I christen the new terrain I wish to explore inner space, that psychological domain, manifest, for example, in surrealist painting, where the inner world of the mind and the outer world of reality meet and fuse. Primarily, I wanted to write a fiction about the present day, to do this in the context of the late 50s, in a world where the call sign of Sputnik 1 could be heard on one's radio like the advanced beacon of a new universe, required completely different techniques from those available to the 19th century novelist. In fact, I believe that it were possible to scrap the whole of existing literature and be forced to begin again without any knowledge of the past. All writers would find themselves inevitably producing something very close to science fiction. Science and technology multiply around us. To an increasing extent, they dictate the languages in which we speak and think. Either we use those languages or we remain mute. Yet, by an ironic paradox, modern science fiction became the first casualty of the changing world it anticipated and helped to create. The future envisaged by the science fiction of the 1940s and 1950s is already our past. Its dominant images, not merely of the first moon flights and interplanetary voyages, but of our changing social and political relationships in a world governed by technology, now resemble huge pieces of discarded stage scenery. For me, this could be seen most touchingly in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, which signified the end of the heroic period of modern science fiction. Its lovingly imagined panoramas and costumes, its huge set pieces, reminded me of Gone with the Wind, a scientific pageant that became a kind of historical romance in reverse, a sealed world into which the hard light of contemporary reality was never allowed to penetrate. Increasingly, our concepts of past, present, and future are being forced to revise themselves, just as the past itself, in social and psychological terms, became a casualty of Hiroshima and the nuclear age, almost by definition a period where we were all forced to think prospectively. So in its turn, the future is ceasing to exist, devoured by the all-voracious present. We have annexed the future into our own present, as merely one of those manifold alternatives open to us. Options multiply around us. We live in an almost infantile world where any demand, any possibility, whether for lifestyles, travel, sexual roles, or identities, can be satisfied instantly. In addition, I feel the balance between fiction and reality has changed significantly in the past decade. Increasingly, their roles are reversed. We live in a world ruled by fictions of any, every kind, mass merchandising, advertising, politics, conducted as a branch of advertising. 
the instant translation of science and technology into popular imagery, the increasing blurring and intermingling of identities within the realm of consumer goods, the preempting of any free or original imaginative response to experience by the television screen. We live inside an enormous novel. For the writer in particular, it is less and less necessary for him to invent the fictional content of his novel. The fiction is already there. The writer's task is to invent the reality. In the past, we have always assumed that the external world around us has represented reality, however confusing or uncertain, and that the inner world of our minds, its dreams, hopes, ambitions, represented the realm of fantasy and the imagination. These roles, too, it seems to me, have been reversed. The most prudent and effective method of dealing with the world around us is to assume that it is a complete fiction. Conversely, the one small node of reality left to us is the one inside our own heads. Freud's classic distinction between the latent and manifest content of the dream, between the apparent and the real, now needs to be applied to the external world of so-called reality. Given these transformations, what is the main task facing the writer? Can he any longer make use of the techniques and perspective of the traditional 19th century novel, with its linear narrative, its measured chronology, its consular characters grandly inhabiting their domains within an ample time and space? Is his subject matter the sources of character and personality sunk deep in the past, the unhurried inspection of roots, the examination of the most subtle nuances of social behavior and personal relationships? Has the writer still the moral authority to invent a self-sufficient and self-enclosed world to preside over his characters like an examiner, knowing all the questions in advance? Can he leave out anything he prefers not to understand, including his own motives, prejudices, and psychopathology? I feel myself that the writer's role, his authority, and license to act has changed radically. I feel that, in a sense, the writer knows nothing any longer. He has no moral stance. He offers the reader the contents of his own head. He offers a set of options and imaginative alternatives. His role is that of the scientist, whether on safari or in his laboratory, faced with a completely unknown terrain or subject. All he can do is devise hypotheses and test them against the facts. Crash is such a book an extreme metaphor for an extreme situation, a kind of desperate measures only for use in an extreme crisis. If I am right, and what I have done over the past few years is rediscover the present for myself, Crash takes up its position as a cataclysmic novel of the present day, in line with my previous novels of world cataclysm set in the near immediate future, the drowned world, the drought, and the crystal world. Crash, of course, is not concerned with an imaginary disaster, however imminent, but with a pandemic cataclysm institutionalized in all industrial societies that kills hundreds of thousands of people each year and injures millions. Do we see, in the car crash, a sinister portent of a nightmare marriage between sex and technology? Will modern technology provide us with hitherto undreamed-of means for tapping our own psychopathologies? Is this harnessing of our innate perversity conceivably of benefit to us? Is there some deviant logic unfolding more powerful than that provided by reason? Throughout Crash, I have used the car not only as a sexual image, but as a total metaphor for man's life in today's society. As such, the novel has a political role quite apart from its sexual content, but I would still like to think that Crash is the first pornographic novel based on technology. In a sense, pornography is the most political form of fiction, dealing with how we use and exploit each other in the most urgent and ruthless way. Needless to say, the ultimate role of Crash is cautionary, a warning against the brutal, erotic, and overlit realm that beckons more and more persuasively to us from the margins of the technological landscape. Written by a man 
who had not experienced the internet. I mean, that's kind of wild, right? Uh, sure, any any overall piece of cultural analysis written in 1974 is going to have blind spots. It's funny that he says the romantic, heroic era of science fiction is over three years before Star Wars comes out. He might have considered that space fantasy or one of the other uh, euphemisms created by Lucas or anyone to say, no, 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 this isn't science fiction. But that's really one of the things Ballard is talking about. Everybody running away from the term. Everybody not wanting to be shelved in that part of the library or bookstore. Don't put me with the science fiction, please. And I think Ballard largely largely succeeded. I don't know that he's often shelved with the science fiction. And yeah, you know, is he is he does he go a little far? Does he push a little too deeply into his thesis at point at parts? Perhaps, but it. It does get you thinking, and it. I think his idea that science fiction is particularly valuable because it displays, it deals with human society as perpetually in motion and subject to change rather than simply immutable. I mean, there are great novels, great works of art set against one historical background or another. He does mention Gone with the Wind, which is racist trash, but that portrays a society being destroyed and good thing too. But most novels do not. There is a sense of the exact here and now and very little else. I used to say that if you took a survey of the models of the 20th century, you would come away thinking that marital infidelity was really the most important and pressing matter uh, to the human race, to which I say, not really, not so much. Uh, But that is the most bourgeois of concerns. Uh, he says, with love, drinking martini his apartment. Mm. So that is The Introduction to Crash by G. Ballard. I love it because it is a passionate defense of genre as a completely legitimate form of art and human enterprise. And for that, J.G., here's to you. See you all in the next exciting episode of Pulp Today and Pulp. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.